Topic of our Dhamma talk at nearly certain evening is certainly the or four ways of sharpening the controlling faculties out of a total of nine ways. Now, yesterday we spoke about certainly the controlling faculties, punching Driani in the Pali scriptural language, and certainly those five controlling faculties are number one, faith, and number two, yes, and number three, and number four, and number five. Okay. <laughs> You've surely learned your lesson. <laughs> And so these five are known as controlling faculties because they exercise control in their respective domains, and namely in the domain of resolution, of exertion, of awareness, of non-distraction, and then of discernment. And as was mentioned, they help to overcome their respective opposites. Now, in the Visuddhi Magga, there in its 20, 20th chapter, paragraph 21, we find an interesting passage, namely related to those controlling faculties. And there it says, and I'm quoting directly near Venerable or Bhikkhunyana Mori's translation, while thus engaged in inductive insight, so you know, this means certain you know, insight meditation, you know, satipatthana meditation, however, if it does not succeed, one should sharpen one's faculties of faith, etc., in the nine ways stated thus. And then the faculties become sharp in nine ways, and then one to nine. So, what is meant is when one applies certain the controlling or makes certain good use of certain the controlling faculties in order to see objects certain clearly, in particular physical and certain mental formations, and one does not see clearly. So one cannot distinguish physical formations clearly, one cannot distinguish mental formations clearly, then these nine ways of sharpening the controlling faculties are recommended. Now, the first of these nine ways of sharpening is one sees only the destruction of arisen formations. Number, and this is the literal translation of Nilapani. Then, in, as number two, in that occupation, one makes certain sure of working carefully. 
And then as the third detonant way of sharpening the controlling faculties, we have one makes sure of working perseveringly. And certainly today we will deal with this. And certainly then, as number four, one makes sure of working suitably. So with this, this one we will not deal with. And certainly then number five, by apprehending the sign of concentration. Again, we will not deal with this. Number six, by balancing the enlightenment factors. This too, we will touch upon at a later point during one of the later Dhamma talks in the context of Dhamma Nupasana Satipatthana, a mindful contemplation of Dhammas. And then number seven, one establishes disregard of body and life. And number eight, wherein one overcomes pain by renunciation. And number nine, by not stopping halfway. And certainly, so number three, number seven, eight, and nine, these you know, four ways of sharpening the controlling faculties we will deal with this evening. And for the others, we simply don't certainly have the time. And also, some of the other ways of sharpening the controlling faculties are not really, do not really involve your. Uh, active participation, like creating you know, supportive conditions, either they're there or not there. And maybe it's a matter of adopting you know, to, to the weather, etc. But for the most part, you know, there's not much you, know, you can do. So the, the third um, way of sharpening the controlling faculties is given in the Pali scriptural language as Satacha Kiriyaya Sampadeti, Sampadeti in Pali. And so the Venerable Sadhupanita translates this as unbroken continuity. And here Satacha indeed is continuation or perseverance. Satacha Kiriya then means perseverance. Sampadeti means to try to accomplish or to make sure. Hence, one makes sure of working perseveringly. So, one aspect of this working perseveringly is that one tries to observe the presently arising objects moment after moment without any break. So, in other words, we pay much attention to the continuity of our mindfulness. And in this way, we establish mindfulness, and this then will prevent the mental defilements from entering or infiltrating the stream of consciousness. Now, there are, from a practical point of view, quite, or there are ways of really ensuring this continuity of mindfulness. Now, 
One way is that certainly if you find yourself engaged in some complex activity that requires certain various certain movements happening at the same time, then it might be difficult to know what certainly should be observed. And so one very basic principle for the mindfulness certain meditation is always trying to observe one object at a time. And so don't try to observe two or three objects at a time, except for certain phases, two particular phases in the meditation practice, where our mindfulness happens to be panoramic. And so, let's say, when you need to open a door, then you focus your attention on first on the process of stretching the arm, then next you focus your attention on touching the handle. Actually, before stretching the arm, there might be an intention, the intention to stretch. So then try to be mindful of that. Then this is followed by the actual stretching of the arm. Then there is the touching of the door handle. Then knowing the different sensations involved in this. And then there is maybe the intention to turn the door handle down, followed by the actual physical process of turning it down, and then pushing the door open, and then going through the door. So one by one, that would be the way a meditator would open a door and go through a door. But for a non-meditator outside of a retreat, this would be just one very quick activity. So we just push the door open and we're barely aware of what's going on. So this certainly really helps. And certainly the example given, you can then transpose to any other complex activity. Now, maybe to give you one more example here, namely that of eating. So when we scoop some food, bring it to the mouth, and suddenly then put the food into the mouth, withdraw the spoon or fork, and suddenly then put the utensil back, then and then there's a process of chewing, etc. Then it's really helpful to do these certain things one by one and not all at the same time. And to give you a negative example, so one is certainly quickly scooping the food. One can't wait for the food to be placed into the mouth. So then 
it's in the mouth, one starts satna chewing, and satna then, or immediately the, or simultaneously, the arm reaches for the next scoop of food, and while one is still chewing the first morsel, already the second load is being placed into the mouth. And then your eyes may be looking at you know, the exciting food, that is left on your plate and you are planning already what you're going to eat next. Or maybe you're already stretching then for maybe a pear or whatnot. And so this then means we are well overloading our mindfulness and suddenly then the mind no longer knows what to observe and that suddenly gets rather complicated. Now the Venerable Sadhupandita also proposes as another way of working perseveringly to when one has to change one's posture. So let's say one is sitting in meditation, a pain arises, the pain becomes rather excruciating, then finally the time has come to change one's posture. Then one does this not all at once, but rather step by step. So first, you know, the first thing to do would be I mean, the intention, yes, uh, to know the intention to shift one's posture, followed by, let's say, the gradual stretching of one leg, or straightening of one leg, and suddenly then gradually bending it backwards, maybe labeling yet another intention, and doing, and maybe also reaching for the leg with one's hand, and supporting the whole process. So breaking down a complex movement into smaller items or units. Now, the Venerable Sanyupanita, Bhivamsa, um, on occasion when he sees that a meditator is uh, uh, rather serious in his or her meditation practice. And then you know, during the interview, he might suddenly propose, well, why don't you start you know, being mindful of the process of opening and closing the eyes? And so this then means that when you sit down and then you arrange the body and then comes the time to close the eyes. Then you don't do this in autopilot, but rather you do it really, really mindfully. Again, you start with the intention to close the eyes and this then will be followed by the actual process of foot and closing the eyes. And then, when closing the eyes, what do you think? Are there any sensations accompanying this process? There are many. 
actually many more than you know, we you know, might uh, you know, estimate uh, nor assume under you know, normal you know, circumstances. And so, you know, so you know, your three universal characteristics of Anicca, Dukkha, and Anatta uh, are you know, waiting you know, to be discovered by you, you know, during you know, the process of uh, closing you know, the eyes. Now, once you know, you've you know, succeeded you know, with this, then you, know, you, you know, do the entire you know, sit, so you're mindful of whatever you know, predominant formation comes up, and you know, then you know, the bell, you know, the bell comes, and rather than jumping up from you know, your seat, you, know, you try to remember you know, this you know, uh, instruction of you know, being mindful you know, whenever opening you know, the eyes, and so. You know, so if you open the eyes without really being mindful, you know, then uh, start all over again, and so. You know, so and then, you know, rather than getting up, close your eyes you know, one more time, and you know, then you know, this time around, uh, open them really slowly and mindfully. So again, you know, the intention you know, will be there, or if an intention is predominant, okay, then you know, focus on this, label it, observe it, know its nature, and you know, then you know, carefully observe you know, the process of opening you know, the eyes. And again, you, know, you will you know, find you know, quite you know, a number of different sensations occurring you know, while opening the eyes. At a later point in you know, one's meditation practice, it might certainly you know, seem as if you know, the eyes are glued together by super glue, and so you barely get them open. And so, yeah, so this is just to share you know, one possible, you know, one out of many you know, possible you know, experiences. Now, when you, you know, work, or when you make sure of working perseveringly, you know, then you, you know, will also you know, want to you know, make sure you know, that you don't get lost in much you know, thinking about certain whatever you know, predominant experience certainly comes up. So, you know, like you know, reflections, you know, why is this particular object arising, and how come you know, it's certainly arising now and not uh, earlier in the practice, and so and then uh, also it's not certainly necessary you know, that you're trying to gauge you know, your or you, know, you take the experience and you know, then you're trying to you know, figure out you know, which insight knowledge you know, does this you know, have to do with and so on. Also there's need, no need you know, to you know, go off you know, into you know, let's say you know, some philosophical you know, thinking or you know, into you know, reasoning or you know, hesitation and so on and so forth. So if one gets lost in thinking while an, or, or, yeah, while an object is occurring and while it is going on and then passing away, one will be missing most of the show and or most of the action.
Now, Well, then, then, yeah, sure enough, then you know what the object is all about. No, then you know what it's like when it arises, you know, you know what it's like you know, while it's going on, and you know what it's like you know, when it's disappearing, as simple as that. And so, yeah, so. now, during the you know, first uh, insight, knowledges, a meditator usually needs to be reminded by a meditation teacher to be mindful from moment to moment. So the beginning meditators don't quite, they hear it, but easily forget the message. And then, fortunately, starting, usually starting around the fourth insight knowledge, when the practice becomes quite interesting, then meditators of their own accord will want to be continuously mindful. And Satna then it needs Satna less reminding by the teacher. And then even later on in the practice, once the continuity of one's mindfulness becomes extremely important and as a, as a meditator one realizes this and uh, naturally uh, will then uh, work on a, uh, a greater or, or on a perfection of uh, one's continuity. Now the one illustration uh, that certainly has been uh, given in the context of uh, the you know, continuity of uh, mindfulness was certainly uh, related uh, already in you know, an earlier you know, Dhamma talk, namely that of trying to you know, start uh, a fire in the apps. Let's say you know, one is on a on a hike, uh, wilderness uh, hike, and uh, then you know, in the absence of uh, gas, uh, lighter, and uh, matches, then one has to light a fire by rubbing maybe two sticks against each other, etc. Now, another illustration, and this one is from the scriptures themselves, is that of a chameleon. A chameleon or a house lizard. Do you have any here in the States? Pardon me? Or salamanders, yes, okay, no, no, those uh, no, will not no, work. So, <laughs> for the illustration. So, no, then, uh, in the case of a uh, no, lizard, if you watch its way of moving about, then it will all of a sudden rush ahead and then it will stop, it will lift its head, gaze around, and then after an unspecified period of time, without any particular reason, it will move ahead again. It will rush ahead. 
and suddenly the intuitive stop all over again, gaze around, and suddenly then, for one reason or another, it moves. Suddenly it continues to move. Now, um, strangely enough, a lizard manages to survive despite of its way of movement. However, if our yogis and their mindfulness happens to be somewhat similar to the movements of of a lizard, namely being present and not being present, so being there and then and then all of a sudden stopping, then our yogis might not survive for very long. So please make sure that you don't become, as the Venerable has said, make sure that you don't become a chameleon yogi or a lizard yogi. And so the practical implication of being a lizard yogi is that you have some wonderful experience and then you start thinking about it. Oh, have I ever had this experience before? What's the meaning of this? Then how am I faring in terms of insight knowledges, etc., etc. So if you start thinking like this, your mindfulness is no longer continuous. Or if you observe objects for a while, let's say half an hour or so, you've dealt with the pain and then the mind goes, okay, now I've worked hard enough, I've really earned myself a good sudden break. And then you decide, since everyone else has the eyes closed, you decide to nap in the sitting posture. And so yeah, this is not really continuity, or this is not really yeah, making sure of working perseveringly. Now, the next, uh, um, yeah, the next way of uh, sharpening yeah, the controlling faculties as uh, given is the seventh way, namely in the Pali scriptural language given as Kayecha, Jiwitecha, Anapekatam, Upata Peti. This means, and I'm following you know, the you know, translation by Nabiku Nyanamoli, one establishes disregard of body and life. So, now, this means you know, that certainly one practices you know, with you know, courageous certain effort and certainly one is willing to make sacrifices with regard to one's body and life. Now, there is a passage, if I'm not mistaken, the Terra Gata, where a certain Terra practiced with a resolution, namely, let my... Let my what was it? Let my limbs dry up, let my you know, blood suddenly dry up, and suddenly then, um, even if my, uh, uh, well, if the bones suddenly shatter, never mind, I will try until I gain the Dhamma. Now, 
please. You, know, you don't have to practice with this much of a uh, resolution or determination. If you uh, manage to uh, do maybe just 50% of uh, this and uh, you maintain your, uh, the health of your uh, body, uh, then uh, this is certainly good enough. Now, um, to practice with, uh, without regard for you know, one's body and life you know, could certainly mean or, or means you know, things like having less consideration you know, for you know, one's you know, body. And so, as ordinary human you know, beings, we may be, especially in the morning, you know, when getting ready, we may be spending, an, uh, men and women alike, we may be spending an awful lot of footnote uh, time uh, in front of footnote uh, the mirror and then applying this chemical and applying another chemical and then some spray here and there and footnote uh, then. Um, and then now the latest thing is that we also need to have our trademark scent. And then only we jump into life. So this while on retreat, it is not necessary to spend much time on you know, beautifying you know, the body, and certainly it's quite enough you know, if we you know, take a shower and certainly then and then uh, put on you know, the clothes and certainly get certainly going. Now, with less or with you know, yeah, less time spent on the beautification of you know, this certain you know, body, we might certainly you know, then you know, find that we have uh, more time for actual practice. And practicing without certain regard for body and life may also mean that certainly we, well, we make, we make sacrifices with regard to our comfort. So we might certainly realize we don't really always need to sit on the most comfortable sofa and a somewhat harder chair will also do. Now, the Venerable Saito Pandita, Bhivams of Satna Burma, in his Satna book in this Satna very life, points out that we need to extract, well, precious items from this body as long as it is alive. And so, if we lead our lives in in a superficial manner, then we are not really, we might enjoy all sorts of essential pleasures, but we might not really extract anything valuable from this body. So the body in itself could be seen as a rubbish heap. And so it needs to be put to good use. Now, can you think of any precious items that you can extract from the body as long as it is alive? 
Pardon me? Inside knowledge. Inside knowledge, yes, okay. And what else? Mindfulness, yes. What else? The Brahma Viharas, yes, certainly, that loving kindness, compassion, and so on. And certainly, then, what about virtue? No, so a very simple one. And then, since we're talking about the five controlling faculties, you might as well try to let those arise. So, um, as long as we have a body, um, and this body of ours is obviously not going to last forever, we might as well put it to good use and then extract things that will be for our benefit and also for the benefit of others. So if, for instance, we manage to... Um, and use certainly the presence of the body, and we then practice certainly the um, the five precepts or eight or ten precepts or the monastic vows, The result of this will be purity of physical and verbal conduct. And then, when we make effort in our meditation practice and the controlling faculties arise, then these will help the mind to resist the domination by greed, hatred, and certain delusion. And then, with a mind that is freed from unwholesome mental states, happiness has a chance to arise and inner freedom has a chance to arise. So go for it and use, use the body as long as it is around and young and strong. Now, in the connection of practicing with disregard or establishing disregard of body and life, it might be useful to know the so-called four summaries of the Dhammudesa in the Pani scriptural language as given in the Ratapana Sutta of the Majjhimanikaya, namely the mid-length discourses of the Buddha, Sutta 82. And also these same four summaries of the Dhamma are mentioned in Sutta or in discourse number 36. Now, what do you think? There are, the Buddha says, there are four weaknesses of human existences, of human existence. What are those fundamental weaknesses? Four of them. Sleep. Sleep. Why is that a weakness? <laughs> no, I thought that's what we're struggling against. <laughs> <laughs> no, I just want to know your, your reasoning for mentioning sleep. <laughs> uh, 
Okay, yes, more, more leads, yeah. Ah, oh, we're getting there, not so bad. Uh, yes, and Nalin, uh, can you think of another weakness, fundamental weakness of human existence? No, Dukkha, yes. Anything else? Birth, yes, is also a form of dukkha. Okay, so now the first of these weaknesses of human existence is certainly given in the Pali scriptural language as upaniyati loko aduvo. And the translation of this is from Venerable Bhikkhu Nyanamuri and then editing by Bhikkhu Bodhi. And life in any world is unstable. It is swept away, and the translators add, towards aging and death. And the first two words, life in, uh, are also added by uh, the translators. So, life in any world is unstable. It is swept away towards aging and death. So, what this means is, even though we happen to be young and healthy, um, can we will, may I be young and healthy forever? We cannot. And even though we may wish not to grow old, can we will this? May I not grow old? Obviously, this is an impossibility. And suddenly then, even though we may not want to die, can we will, may I not die? Not. And suddenly, in the case of the Buddha, even he could not escape death. And so, Year by year, month by month, week by week, day by day, hour by hour, and minute by minute, second by second, we get swept towards death, towards sudden old age, disease, and sudden death. And such an existence, would it be justified to call it stable? Not really. And so... So, from this Satna very first Satna summary of the Dhamma, namely that life in any world is unstable, it is swept away towards aging and death, then follows the second Satna summary of the second Dhammudesa, namely life in any world has no shelter and no protector. And certainly the Nepani for this is Atano Loko Anabisaro. Now, can your parents fully protect you against falling sick? They cannot. Can your parents fully protect you against growing old? They cannot. And suddenly then, can they protect suddenly you from death? Again, no. 
And so, is there anyone who can protect you against old age disease and death? There really is not. And so, the commentary to the Madhimanikaya is pointing out that there is one refuge from the world, however, and, and the emphasis here is from the world, and namely from old age, disease, and death. And this is the Dhamma. And so, practicing the Dhamma, sooner or later, once we have perfected the various the controlling faculties, enlightenment factors, and so on, then the peace of Nibbana arises, and in this particular state, there is any old age? There's not. And in the state of Nibbana, there is no experience of disease, and there's also no death in the normal sense. So the second summary of the Dhamma is life in any world has no shelter and no protector. Now, the third summary, you might certainly guess if I give you a hint. Namely, we get born into you know, this human existence, you know, we grow up, uh, you know, we, we go to school, and uh, you know, then acquire all sorts of skills, acquire all sorts of uh, possessions, and certainly then, you know, sooner or later, death occurs. So then, you know, what about our property? Do we, ultimately speaking, is there any, any property that we truly own? Is there or is there not? Our? And why is that? Why? None of God's is from lifetime to lifetime. There you go. And certainly this is certainly correct. So, when we think of Futnam property, and then various kinds of Futnam property uh, exist. The texts certainly distinguish four types of property. The first one being immovable property, such as your piece of land and then a building or two on it. And then the second form of property is certain movable property. So like your, the books and then maybe a ball pen and then maybe your toothbrush and your toothpaste that you take along when you go on a journey plus some clothing. So this is movable property. Then we have knowledge and skills, which also is a form of property. And so, so 
any skills or knowledge that we acquire by attending school or by attending college, university, and practical skills, these are useful. However, can we really take them along to another existence? And then as number four, as Jim has correctly said, we have transferable property. And the only item that comes under this point is are your karmic results of actions performed. So if you've performed wholesome deeds, there will be wholesome results that will follow you. If you've performed unwholesome deeds, there will be unwholesome results that will follow you when you pass over from one existence to the next. So when it comes to the immovable properties such as our piece of land and then buildings, well, the the building might or the buildings might burn down, and so ultimately, it's we're we're not possessing those. And then, in terms of the land, the government might decide that it wants to build a road right there, and so you lose your property. And so ultimately speaking, immovable property is not really ours and we for sure can take it to another existence. Now, what about your toothbrush and toothpaste? <laughs> and your clothing? Can you take, ultimately speaking, do you really own it? Not really. So uh, a person who doesn't have a toothbrush and toothpaste that uh, might decide uh, or declare this is mine or these are mine and uh, then uh, those are not yours anymore. They're gone. And, and uh, then uh, when uh, passing on uh, from uh, one existence to uh, the other, do you do so uh, equipped uh, with a toothbrush and toothpaste? <laughs> Do you or do you not? I want a serious answer to this. <laughs> so, obviously not. <laughs> this is a true point. <laughs> I can see, there you go. And certainly so, all the knowledge and skills that we have acquired during our lifetime, these two we can take along. So our academic degrees and then maybe our, our skill in playing the piano or the violin or whatever, or in gardening, etc., etc., all of these things we can take alone. So the only thing that Satna really remains Satna with us is indeed the karmic results. And this Satna then means if really we want to make a serious investment into our future, then it should be made into what? 
into karma, and certainly this in detail means practice the dharma. Practice the dharma yes, good deeds. good deeds. There you go, and certainly so. You know, perform wholesome deeds such as certainly perform acts of generosity, you know, such as you know, taking and observing you know, the precepts. And certainly then developing you know, the mind bhavana and certainly then you know, developing wholesome you know, qualities love, like loving kindness, compassion, and certainly so on, and certainly so forth. So these certain things will ensure that our future you know, rebirth will be a favorable you know, one. Now, the third the summary of the Dhamma then is life in any world has nothing of its own. One has to leave all and pass on. Asako loko sabampahaya gamaniyam in the Pali scriptural language. Sabampahaya means um, leave all, leave behind everything, give up everything, and gamaniyam is to pass on. Now, the last summary of the dominant weakness of human existence is life in any world is incomplete, insatiate, the slave of craving, in Pali, given as uno loco atito tanha daso. So, tanha is your craving, daso is your slave. So, one is a slave of certain craving. So, this means in practice that, let's say, some dish is being, or a dish has been some exquisite, certain, rather unique dish has been prepared by you know, the you know, cooks here at certain, you know, the center. And certain, so you, know, you then take of you know, this food, you like it very much, and immediately you know, the thought arises, let me have some more of this. And so, you know, so craving uh, is certain, you know, there. Or, you know, if you, you feel ashamed to you know, go for a second helping, you might, you know, towards the end of the retreat, approach you know, the cook for the recipe. And this is just another way of ensuring that you can have more of it at home. This time around, you prepare it. It's yourself. And so, um, so see, a problem with sense pleasure is that what we haven't experienced yet we want to experience and what we have experienced once and we like it we may want more of it more and more and more and more of the same and suddenly then experiencing more and more of the same sooner or later what will happen we get bored with it and suddenly so and then this new item, this new food, and suddenly so on, is not that attractive anymore. And suddenly with this then, a new form of our craving, of being a slave to craving, occurs, namely, then we start to crave for something else, something entirely different. 
And so we keep going through existence, craving for this and that and yet another thing or the same thing over and over uh, again. And so, you know, there seems to be no end you know, to uh, this. This is under normal circumstances when we do not practice you know, mindfulness. Now, the practice of mindfulness uh, makes a big uh, difference here, and certainly uh, gradually with mindfulness practice, we realize you know, this nature of uh, you know, this craving, you know, nature of you know, the mind, and certainly uh, then um, you know, we learn you know, to see its nature and to uh, let go of it. Now, in um, or understanding these four you know, summaries of the Dhamma, or in other words, weaknesses of you know, human uh, existence, you know, then there will be a greater um, urgency you know, to you know, practice you know, the Dhamma. Now, on one occasion, as is certainly related in the Ratapana Sutta, you know, there you know, was a young Bhikkhu, who actually was from a rather affluent family and was blessed with all sorts of comfort and yet all everything, all, all the best things of the world at his certain disposal. On one occasion, the king of the country came across this young Bhikkhu Ratapana and the king knew him as a young lady man and suddenly then asked him what in the world have you experienced to have become a monk what led you to become a monk you're as a young man person you've been blessed with all the good things of the world how come you've given up all all of this was it out of boredom or maybe um, has certain, have you experienced some tremendous suffering or you know, what? And uh, then Bhikkhu Ratapana replies that he heard a discourse by the Buddha and the discourse was actually on these four summaries of the Dhamma and this thing created a tremendous sense of urgency in him and he very much wanted to practice and eventually he gained the Dhamma. And so it is out of seeing these, seeing, knowing these weaknesses of human existence that certainly we might certainly feel encouraged to give ourselves fully to the practice. Now, briefly, the eighth way of sharpening the controlling faculties is um, then given in the Pali net language as tata cha abibuya nekamena. And certainly the English translation of this as given by Bhikkhu Nyanamori and Satya Bhikkhu Nyabodhi is wherein one overcomes, and the translators add, or, or it's Bhikkhu Nyanamori, sorry, 
Uh, so he adds pain by renunciation, wherein one overcomes pain by renunciation. Tata means there in that place. Abibuya is from Abibawati, which means to overcome or to conquer. And Nekamena is the instrumental of Nekama, renunciation. So wherein one overcomes pain by renunciation. Now, in the course of the meditation practice, all sorts of physical and mental pains may come up. And in an earlier Dhamma talk, namely on pain, we've already mentioned the three strategies for dealing with pain. And the first one being an all-out effort, so one goes right into the pain. The second one being adopting a guerrilla strategy. So going into the pain and then after a while when the mind is withering, retreating, however still keeping the object in view. And then the third way the third strategy, if the second one fails, is then simply to retreat and observe some other predominant object. Now, in the course of the meditation practice, we experience not only physical pains, but also quite a number of mental pains. Among the two, the physical pain and mental pain, from your subjective point of view, which ones are more difficult? Hmm? The mental pain. Yes, indeed. And so, so there are places in our meditation practice when lots and lots of mental pain comes up. And so it is in this connection that we need two qualities, namely patience and perseverance. And so let me use this opportunity to elaborate you know, just a bit on uh, patience, since certainly uh, this is uh, so important uh, for uh, practice. We've mentioned already, if I'm not mistaken, you know, that the characteristic of uh, patience is acceptance. So we accept a situation or an object you know, for uh, what it is. And its function is you know, to endure you know, the desirable as well as the undesirable. So you know, when a difficult mental state comes up, and then you know, rather than you know, wanting to get rid of it, we simply just endure it. So we endure the undesirable. And its manifestation then is as tolerance or non-opposition. So, in the course of the meditation practice, there are a number of you know, physical pains as well as certain mental pains that are bound to arise just owing to you know, the insight knowledge you happen to be in. So there's not much you can do about it. And so if you were to oppose you know, these experiences, it would mean that you, know, you go against the grain. And so it really is not worth trying.
So tolerance or non-opposition works much better. And so the proximate cause for it, you know, the arising of patients is certainly given as seeing things as they really are, namely according to you know, reality, uh, seeing things according to you know, reality. Now, sometimes when we are you know, on a retreat and certainly we experience certain difficult mental states, then it's not necessarily only because we experience some difficult physical object, but it may also be because we remember something that someone else did to us 15 years ago. It could be physical, you know, you know some physical hurt that certainly was certainly inflicted on, or harm that was inflicted on us, or it could also be some verbal infliction of pain. And certainly, so even though we are sitting here uh, in the present moment at the forest refuge, yet uh, the mind certainly is uh, way back uh, at a place certainly uh, 15 uh, years ago. And, so, and, and then many difficult formations or mental factors that might arise in connection with that certain particular uh, experience or life fitness situation. And so if it was a really uh, terrible experience and certainly really caused us much suffering, then uh, anger is likely to arise. And maybe also a vengeance, wanting or wanting to take revenge for the suffering one that had been inflicted on oneself. Now, the Buddha has very much praised patience. And certainly, the one of the commentators, or a commentator, to the um, Charya Pitaka, namely the Acharya Dhammapala, in his treatise on the Paramis, then shares certainly the following reflections, namely. Patience can be seen as, and the Buddha has certainly mentioned this, as certain, uh, the strength or a strength of recluses and Brahmins. So if you think of a monastic in whatever tradition, these are even as a lay meditator on observing eight certain precepts, there are so many things that one is not supposed to do for ethical or unethical grounds. And so this is not always certainly easy. And certainly if you then remember to be patient and you just keep trying as best as you can, you try to observe the precepts, then gradually your patience becomes stronger. And then if someone comes and challenges you, then your newly gained patience will be a strength to you. So, 
as a late meditator observing precepts or a monastic observing monastic vows, we cannot act like any ordinary being who maybe yells back at another person. Hence, what we have to fall back on is patience. And suddenly then, if we just let the situation pass, then we turn out to be the winner. Now, this patience also has been referred to as a mantra for quelling the poisonous speech of evil people. And in this regard, allow me to share a story that was related by Do Saint Saint La, a Burmese lady who had worked for, I think, the Burmese Foreign Trade Bank or so, and then joined the Meditation Center in Lumbini during the very, very early years. And she related that on you know, one occasion, um, her um, her family was staying in you know, downtown um, Yangon in Burma, and in a um, in an apartment. And suddenly, then on um, I, I forgot exactly, maybe on second floor, third floor, or so. And then you know, one day, you know, there was suddenly this suddenly young man. You know, standing um, on the street and suddenly then looking up to Dosen Sinhala's mother's or mother's apartment and then shouting abuse at her. And suddenly so abusing her verbally for a minute, for two minutes, for three minutes, for five minutes, for seven minutes. And Dosen Sinhala's mother had every reason you know, to you know, shout you know, back. You know, so to you know, you know, you know, retaliate uh, you know, verbal abuse with verbal abuse. Now, she was a Dhamma practitioner and she knew about patience. And she realized that you know, right away at the beginning, this man will sooner or later get tired from shouting. And so, <laughs> And sooner or later, he will no longer have the strength to shout, and probably no more accusations will come to his mind. And indeed, this is what happened. And suddenly, he was so exhausted, he turned around, and that was it. And the mother had not shouted anything in return. So this is how simply through being patient we can then quell poisonous speech of well unskillful people now this um Commentator Acharya Dhammapala then offers a number of reflections that are helpful for or to develop patience. Namely, and I'm quoting: "Those who lack patience are afflicted in this world 
and apply themselves to actions which will lead to their affliction in the life to come. So those who would lack patience will be will end up having to face all sorts of difficulties, and in a future existence they will have to deal with their. Uh, or with the, you know, the karmic results of their impatience. Now, a very you know, nice you know, way of you know, reflecting on you know, patience is, and a way of arousing patience is, if there were no wrongdoers, how could I accomplish the perfection of patience? So, if you, know, you come across you know, some human being that challenges you, now then, actually, you have every reason to be grateful to him or her. Namely, because the person helps you to become a more patient person. So you can then also see a wrongdoer as your benefactor because he or she will give you a chance to develop patience. Now, another way that might help to be patient with the shortcomings of human beings is that one sees human beings as one's own children. And so who, as a parent, who can, who will get angry with one's own children? So if our own children are naughty, then we easily, we know it's out of their ignorance, out of their lack of understanding of the world, is, of what the world is all about. So out of this, they do what they do. And certainly thus it's easy to forgive. Now, also, when a tense certain situation has arisen, it's really helpful to remember that it's not only one party that has contributed to the tension and the conflicting issue, but rather both parties, or maybe even more parties, will be involved. And so from a conflict certain resolution point of view, it's really important to see one's own contribution to a conflict. And the Buddha very much expressed, or the Buddha expressed this point in a very clear manner. So, now, Maybe this much on patience, maybe one last word here, namely the Burmese have a saying, patience leads Satna to Nibbana and Satna this in the face of physical, or physical pains and also in the face of experiencing mental pains, then very much applies. Now, the very last uh, um, way of sharpening the controlling faculties is certainly given in the Pali scriptural language as antara cha abhyosanina, which means by not stopping halfway. And the Venerable Sadhu Pandita you know, 
um, terms this unwavering commitment. And so when we walk this path of insight, certain meditation, then you know, we do not, you know, or we try not to get certain sidetracked here and certain there. So sometimes certain what certain happens is certain that uh, a meditator you know, practices, let's say, up to you know, the fourth insight knowledge where you know, the imperfections of insight tend to, you know, to arise. And so then all these wonderful experiences are there. And then the person you know, may say, okay, you know, I'm satisfied. You know, this much is enough for me. I don't want to progress any further. And you know, then you know, we'll leave it you know, at this. And once, many years ago, at uh, you know, one of the meditation centers in uh, Burma, you know, there was a foreign uh, meditator who, while on retreat, suddenly uh, declared uh, at an early point he only wanted to get up to that, uh, you know, up to the fourth insight knowledge. He was not interested in getting any, uh, going any further because he knew that it would inflict or it would involve having to face some suffering. And so he just didn't want to deal with the suffering part. So please do have the courage to face certain difficulties in your practice. These difficulties are not going to be around for ever. And also, another way of getting sidetracked would be what? Complacency, yes. Anything else? Thinking, yes. Still, what else? Pardon me. Skeptical doubt. Skeptical doubt, yes. Attachment, Attachment yes. Well, I have a very particular thing in mind. Those who have practiced samatha meditation beforehand and are quite familiar with this, when and suddenly then decide to do an intensive fitness satipatthana retreat, as soon as some difficult experiences come up as part of the insight meditation, then may remember their wonderful experiences from the samatha meditation and say, let me go into samadhi. And so then they may want to stay there. How beautiful it is to experience Satya joy and Satya happiness, piti and Satya sukha, and not having to face all the physical and mental dukkha. And Satya, so it is in this way that we might get sidetracked. We lose sight of our ultimate goal, namely the realization of Nibbana. And so uh, experiencing or being skilled in, in samatha, yes, is good, but certainly one needs to, uh, one needs to, uh, one needs to ensure uh, that one doesn't uh, get certainly stuck there. 
Samatha meditation is a form of third meditation that is not unique to Buddhism. It's something that certainly existed even before the Buddha's time. He practiced it, the Buddha practiced it, and he gained mastery in it. And But he mostly, or to a great extent, he relied on the practice of uh, inside uh, to uh, gain uh, full enlightenment. And so, um, even if we uh, become great experts in uh, Samatha meditation, so uh, we master uh, the first, uh, uh, the four uh, material jhanas, or fine material jhanas, and then uh, the eight, uh, uh, four immaterial jhanas, we, even if we uh, master uh, certain psychic uh, powers, this does not guarantee a realization of the peace of uh, Nibbana. And so in the end, uh, we may still end up as certain uh, losing out. So let me conclude certain today's certain uh, Dhamma talk on four out of uh, the nine ways of sharpening the controlling uh, faculties. And certain, uh, let me uh, wish, may all of you uh, keep May all of you possess unwavering commitment. May you keep the ultimate goal in view. And certainly then may you practice with persevering or may you practice perseveringly and certainly then um, with courage, with patience and so on. And certainly eventually may it lead to the realization of the path and fruition of stream entry in this certain, hopefully in this very retreat, if not in this very life. And this is it for now. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.